0: Welcome to the Moneyball Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Glorickian. This series is all about the data-driven transformation of the healthcare and life sciences landscape. Each episode, we dive deep through one-on-one interviews with leaders in the new cost-conscious, value-based healthcare economy. We look at the challenges and opportunities they're facing and their predictions for the years to come. My next guest has said that for precision medicine to work correctly, it is critical to have high quality interpretation of the data that is specific to the patient's genes and variants in the context of their disease, and that in turn needs to be linked to the clinical and scientific evidence, which is then linked to the appropriate therapeutic strategies. Dr. Jennifer Levin Carter is a precision medicine entrepreneur and executive. She was the founder of N of One, the global leader in oncology molecular decision support recently acquired by Kiogen. Dr. Carter has a passion for finding solutions to improve patient care. Her particular focus has been the development and delivery of solutions to enable greater patient and physician access to novel diagnostics and therapeutic strategies. Since 2012, she has participated as a presenter, expert panelist, and moderator at more than 25 industry conferences, events, and symposiums, and serves on multiple industry boards. Dr. Carter recently advises companies on their precision medicine strategy, including its service offerings, physician engagement methods, and growth opportunities. Prior to founding and leading N of One, Dr. Carter spent eight years as an investment consulting specializing in biotechnology and life science investments after obtaining her MD Dr. Carter practiced internal medicine at Mount Auburn Hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Carter has a BS in molecular biophysics and biochemistry from Yale University, an MPH from Harvard School of Public Health, an MD from Harvard Medical School, and is currently pursuing an MBA in the executive MBA program at MIT. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Jennifer, you've had a fantastic background and, and, and obviously have, have done, you know, some amazing things. How, how did you, I want to say, meander or thrust yourself into this whole area of precision medicine?
1: Well, thanks for, thanks for including me in your podcast, Harry. Um, you know, it was an interesting journey, actually. I mean, I was really inspired by friends and family members who got sick um, with cancer, and were struggling to navigate the complexities of the healthcare system to find the best treatments for their disease. Um, And that's that's what really took me down this course as I started to uh, help them navigate that system based on my background in clinical medicine and in drug development. And I started to realize that the, um, this was back in the early 2000s actually, And it was clear, based on some of the advancements in diagnostic technologies and the way that drugs were starting to be developed in terms of targeted therapies back then, that there was going to be a whole new paradigm. Um, And that at the same time, there were going to be incredible challenges for getting new diagnostics and treatments to patients' at the point of care in real time.
0: I mean, you guys were way... I mean, I remember, you know, when I had my consulting firm, Scientia, I mean, you guys were... I want to say way ahead of the curve. I mean, I, I I can't think right now of another commercial, not not a provider system, but a commercial entity that was doing sort of interpretation of genomic variants and helping patients and so on and so forth. So it was, felt like it was way ahead of what everybody else was doing. Um, it's amazing that, you know, How you came up with the idea and sort of got it going in a time where i mean i still feel like precision medicine isn't anywhere close to where it should be back in the day i think there were only a handful of people out there talking about
1: it right i mean we were really early we were definitely one of the first companies to jump into the space and to and you know in many ways we ended up defining a whole niche within the space that was this area of knowledge creation if you will um and clinical interpretation I think that early on the observation that I had made about in general how some of the challenges that patients and physicians face in healthcare is just the ability to digest and manage all the knowledge and the data and when you see the evolution in how what what the impact of precision medicine was going to mean for that the data was going to be that much more intense That's much harder to understand and interpret. Um, And it seemed that it would just add to the current state of fragmentation. And so really the vision was around how do you create something that um, could cut across all the different stakeholders and create the knowledge necessary that really connected physicians and patients with cutting edge diagnostic and treatment strategies in a way that made it understandable and accessible, and so we started that way in 2008. Um, and uh, by a little bit of, I guess, uh, luck, um, it ended up being a, a very good strategy for uh, for um, patients and physicians and for the company.
0: So, well, I'd be re- I, I would be missing or not leaving something out if I didn't say a a, a heartfelt and and wholehearted congratulations on on selling the company to Kayagen. Um, Pear Shots is a a great guy. I I interacted with him a lot when I had the consulting firm. Um, But just so everybody um, who's listening and and those people who are are trying to learn, what did N of One do in, in sort of, layman's terms if possible
1: sure so um what we did uh, um and i actually still do in many ways uh today it, uh, in the context of kiogen is um we did what we called in those days uh, the clinical interpretation of molecular diagnostic data so um a person with cancer would have their tumor biopsied and then um it could go for genomic sequencing or other types of molecular testing and then that data which basically could show changes in the tumor dna needed to be interpreted Um, the data is very complicated there are lots of different changes that occur in the dna of uh, tumor tissue and tumor cells Um, and it's uh, very time consuming uh, to process that information and most physicians don't have the time or the necessary background for understanding the data so what we did was uh, built a team of scientists and consulting oncologists and we would get the data from the labs and then we would uh, interpret the data and basically figure out which were the relevant variants which were the relevant genes and variants what was the combination of variants, which we call the multivariant analysis, to understand the impact on drug sensitivity and drug resistance. And then we would compile um, and essentially curate the clinical, relevant clinical and scientific evidence and match it up with ther- therapies. Uh, those that were FDA approved um, on label, uh, those that were FDA approved off label, and then those in clinical trials and we created one of the most sophisticated systems our platforms for matching patients to clinical trials based on their molecular data.
0: What's interesting when I think back in the day I used to be able to you know flip on my computer in the morning and then you know I would read about some new gene that had some you know impact on on a particular cancer and or disease and and now it's just impossible. To keep up with them one by one, and so I I have to imagine that back in the early days we'd be like, oh yeah, you know there's this one and there's that one, there's Braf, there's Kras, there's now there's we're looking at panels of hundreds of them if you if you look at what people are running, um, some of them having a very uh, strong relevance, and then some of them are being way out on the fringe of not knowing what happens, but. I can imagine that was such a learning experience for you guys, and and luckily you guys were there in the real early days. Right,
1: right. It's true, and we learned a lot. You know, as we as we went, I mean, we basically uh, were evolving in many ways ahead of the science um, as it started to emerge, and it was it, it very exciting. It's still very exciting because the science is still changing really every day, and what we're learning is is incredible. You know, and in some ways, I think we're just scratching the surface. Even though the change has been phenomenal, and we've seen just recently um, with Loxo's drug uh, Larotrectinib L- L- being approved for tumors, any tumor right. with an NTREC alteration. Right. You know, now that's the true example of a precision medicine. Um, you know, that it, it basically it's totally based on the biology that's unusual actually you know a lot of the biomarkers that we see still are are relatively particular for the organ of origin right but certainly with catruda uh and the LOXO drug you know they they're based on a biomarker
0: yeah i mean i remember talking about this at applied biosystems when we were before we had finished the gene before we had even started the genome in a sense right what we were sort of throwing around ideas like this and it seems like it's been a long. I feel like it's been a long time, right? And and we're still not anywhere near where I think we should be, right? I think half of that is because medicine is not outcomes-based payment system, right? So right. people Absolutely. move it at the at, the at the pace that right. they want to. But can you share some of your like key lessons that you learned in applying precision medicine to patients in your experience? at N of one or in and around that experience?
1: Um, sure. I mean, I think that uh, one of the, the key lessons, I think I think there's several, um, I think that, you know, if you read the literature now, um, you know, there's a lot of debate, does precision medicine, is it really precision medicine? What is precision medicine? Is the impact great enough? Are we impacting enough patients? You know, I can tell you that when there is an impact, based on what we've seen, that it's pretty, it can be quite phenomenal and it can be incredibly valuable for patients. I think that what I have seen is that we, um, that the technology is incredibly powerful and it, um, but there is a lot of data and the data needs to be interpreted in the right way. Um, and that it's not just about having a mutation in a gene it's about understanding exactly what that mutation is in the context of the particular disease. Because you can have a mutation in BRAF, as you mentioned, in melanoma, for example, and that same BRAF mutation in colorectal cancer is not treated the same way. You can have certain alterations right. in you know, in any gene, and the implications of those have to really be understood within the context of the patient and with the context of their disease. I think the other thing, that we have really believed since the beginning, but I think it's absolutely playing out more and more, better understanding of it now, is the need for different types of technologies to really understand the biology of cancer in particular. So I think we need to um, think about how different types of technologies are going to help us really impact our understanding of disease. So I think you know, genomic sequencing is one piece of the puzzle. It's a really important piece of the puzzle. I think when we look at other types of technologies, there's different. You know, we really need better biomarkers around the immunotherapies, for example. And so, how are we going to look at those types of biomarkers? Is genomic sequencing the only option, or are there? I know of other technologies that are looking at um, ex vivo testing to better understand the tumor microenvironment because that plays a very important role in immune mediation and control of cellular growth um, i think thinking about it in you know cancer in a in a broader way and even all types of disease so go ahead but, yes but, please but
0: but but thinking about this sort of backing up for a second so you and i are always or a lot of times in a in a in a luxurious position of being able to look at a bunch of stuff it's what we it's what we look at It's sort of the world that we live in it's the people that we hang out with right um, and we don't necessarily need to make a decision uh, tomorrow or in an hour or ten times a day like a physician or provider would need to so I, I think about this as an ev- evolutionary way I mean first of all I, I always think like isn't it time that we just reorganized oncology around at least this core technology and assign a computer science group to help them think it through? That, I mean, that's one thing I think needs to happen. The other is I don't think we, we can come to answers or find clues as easily because the N, as you say, an N of one, but the N of everything that we do is siloed in each institution and and that sort of needs to come together, not just with you know patient information, but outcomes.
1: Absolutely. Right.
0: And 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 I think that's almost a IT project as opposed to you know a pure science project to look for at least a low hanging fruit from a pattern perspective. So I mean, where do you see yeah. this evolving? Patients aren't going to get this if it doesn't get implemented.
1: Right. I, I totally agree. So I mean, one of the things where we were successful is very successful around how do you take that knowledge and deliver it to physicians quickly and in a digestible way where they can get to an answer uh, and use that information quickly while they're helping their patients. To your point about computer scientists, you know, of course, AI is, is, you know, people are looking at AI and how it can transform healthcare and certainly precision medicine. And I think that AI can be a great enabler of that. By being able to cull through the literature more quickly, look for pattern recognition, be able to pull out data that around variants more quickly, but AI is not the full solution because there's so much, there's so many shades of gray right now. The complexity of the data, um, you know, the way AI works is it's pattern recognition. But if there's a lot of shades of gray and the data is uncertain, then you can't get to you know, you can't get to a range of answers that might be most relevant for the patient. On the other hand, it can make it more efficient. It can change the workflow. It can change the way information is delivered. So I agree with you, the combination of the technology, the people skills, and the NAI can really help drive this forward. One thing, though, I will say about, you know, all the the sort of the new wearables and the new technologies and the, and the data is that you need really good data to input into the system for, um, you know, for any of the, uh, you know, that kind of automated interpretation or automated understanding to be really impactful from a patient perspective, because it has to be a good answer. Right. So
0: Right. Well, you you talk about changing the workflow. That's almost heresy. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, uh when you, you know, this is the way we do it sort right. of thing. Exactly. Um I mean, I even had the same experience when my mom had pancreatic cancer. It was it was an interesting experience. Uh, I don't want to say fighting the system, but it felt like um I don't know. I don't want to say who's smarter, but it was a difficult discussion to have as opposed to a collaborative discussion of taking it forward um, and I've even had oncologists that I've spoken to that say that their colleagues don't order molecular tests simply because they don't understand it right um, I- which I think is something's wrong with that but but let's talk about I, I am sure that in what you were doing I, I you know you looked at machine learning AI how do you see that making a difference uh, Either in a company like NF1 or an institution, whatever you're comfortable talking about, but where do you see that moving the ball forward and up to what limit, or yeah, right. with it in its current embodiment of AI and machine learning? I'm sure it, it, it stops at some point and a human takes over.
1: Right. So I think you know actually there was a very interesting article just uh, in uh, Nature Medicine in January by Eric Topol that actually looks across you know multiple areas of healthcare. Of where AI um, is being applied, you know, sort of the interesting data that's coming from it, and the limitations and challenges, and um, and I think you know, thinking about that in the context of precision medicine and the experiences that we had, I think that um, you know, again, it's 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 sort of what data is going in, right? Um, really impacts what data is coming out. Yeah. And to your point about outcomes and being able to know what's the right data to go in. The, 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 pro, the challenge right now is we don't necessarily have enough data yet to know what all the right data is to really um, create really great outputs from, um, you know, from AI to make it a fully automated uh, solution in precision medicine. On the other hand, um, for scanning the literature really quickly, for pulling out the right information for being able to assess where there are relevant outcomes and good data i, I think it can be an incredible enabler and drive efficiency those pieces of um, interpretation of you know processing the data processing large amounts of data you know are very very time consuming and inefficient on a human from for humans to do right and yet the actual analysis of that data and what's, you know, and, and how, and that impact within the context of the patient. I don't think that AI or, you know, any of the programs right now are, are, are even no, close no, no, to being no. able to do that yet.
0: No, so. I remember when people would say, we have we have a point of care cancer test. I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so That's yeah. not something you want to say to somebody right there on the spot or at a CVS per se. Right. Right? <laughs> right. Um, but how do you see the technology, let's say, this machine learning AI and or the, you know, the combination of precision medicine and, and even going beyond oncology, is how do you see that changing the practice of medicine? Yeah.
1: Well, I think it's going to change the practice of medicine incredibly, right? I mean, I think if you think about, you know, the wearables, for example, digital technologies, um, the ability to monitor patients in, you know, in their real life environments, and be able to track them on an ongoing basis, I think, is going to create incredible opportunities and challenges. Um, you know, in the first place, on the opportunity side, I think it will give much more real world evidence about really what's going on with the patients, how they're responding to therapies. Um, you know, how they're going through their daily life, what their habits are, what's really happening with their heart rate, their blood pressure, their oxygen saturations. I mean, there are many ways that we can use that to better understand. I think we're already seeing how the FDA is really interested in real world evidence in clinical trials and collecting more real world evidence and patient reported outcomes. And that's really enabled by wearables and digital technology and, you know, the kind of the back end processing of that data. On the other hand, on the challenges related to that is, again, how do we use all that information and how does it get processed and how does that become something that actually doctors can look at and use um, um, in, in their daily practice? Because you can see how there will be generated an overwhelming amount of ongoing data, um, you know, and there can be false positives. There can be you know lots of alarm bells going off, which create um, sort of um, both you know unnecessary activity. Uh, activity, but also crowds out the ability to process you know, the really important data and what the doctors really need to look at. So I think what really is going to be important is as we collect all this data is trying to get to what is the right data on each patient and how do we manage that data in the context of their overall wellness and care?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's funny. I, I I love our, our medical, you know, companies, right. Our, our life sciences, but, but we're, we're all science geeks, right? Yeah. And and <laughs> we love the data and the numbers and the beeps and the boops and the, you know, I love it, love it, love it, right? Especially if you're the hardware guy building it, you you just, you love this stuff. I, I always think like the tech guys would come in and say, your graphical user interface sucks, right? Like we need to make this simpler so the person understands what's going on. And, and you know, I think we need a blend of tech guys to come in with our you know, medical guys and say, look, you know, when the, when the slope goes this way, or when a, you know, the dial looks like this, or mm-hmm. when the, you know, something that makes it, e- Wall Street's figured it out, right? Yep. Uh, very complicated sets of data, making it sort of easy to understand, and then making a decision off of that. Some of that we need to somehow adopt into what we do. Um, so one alarm going off, eh? but three data points sort of pointing in the wrong direction, maybe now it needs a, an intervention sort of thing.
1: Right. And I mean, you know, AI is, uh, you know, some of the really interesting places it's been, you know, radiology, for example. Oh, yeah. And, you know, some of other types of technologies where the, um, the algorithms can really enhance the physician's ability to see things that they may not otherwise be able to identify. So yeah. there's some really amazing applications of it.
0: Yeah, when I talked to, um, you know, the CEO of Arteris and then I talked to Dr. Alpin Patel from Geisinger and, yeah. and I remember him saying like our, our um, system will automatically reorient the scans by severity so that the radiologist looks at the most important one first, right? It just, right. I mean, you're not talking about a major, That that's a, that's but a simple change design. relatively yeah. speaking but the impact is is significant. Right. Um, I also, you know, did an interview with uh, Massimo Busemo from Italy and he was like, you know, the the machine can look at the raw data and actually see things that you don't see in the refined data that the human eye can't can. is, is designed to see. So yeah, yeah. there's a lot of places where I see the technology having a a, a dramatic impact or at least a leap forward you know, based on that how do you see the business model changing because I think of, of the next if you were to start an n of one today mm-hmm. or a company like that is now you you might be able to engage a patient much more than because of technology um, or provide the service in a way that is different than when you first got it off the ground right and so how do you see the business model of Precision medicine, changing and therefore affecting the ivory towers.
1: Yeah, so I think that I think it sort of broadens in my mind. It broadens the concept of what precision medicine really is, right? Um, it, uh, you know, when when um, I think that you know over the last decade or so, precision medicine has really been focused on the concept of genomics, right, and the application of genomics, and I think, you know, many ways, and, and that's been great. And I think that concept in of itself is expanding, right? Because we're seeing more inherited risk panels, um, the implementation of pharmacogenomics, which is so necessary. I think that, you know, understanding how people metabolize drugs right. is, you know, should be a critical component of everybody's health history. Right. Um, and I think that that conversation in of itself is beginning to move forward, you know, the FDA uh, has um, uh, made an, you know, essentially uh, given 23andMe, uh, uh, you know, the go ahead to do some consumer facing genetic testing, inherited risk um, is very, very limited. Um, and, you know, I think that those types of tests. You know people need to move on get and get more if they you know it's better in a medical setting for some of those tests um but i also think with some of the pharmacogenomics one of the great parts of it is consumer awareness and making people more aware that those tests are available and that they should ask their doctors about what the right test to get is so that they can um, get the best testing for their risk factors and we can talk more about that being in the consumer space um if you want as well Uh, The other thing though, I think is thinking more broadly about precision medicine from the context of um, where else, you know, how do these other technologies, you know, expand that definition of precision medicine and that we're not just thinking about genomics, but we're thinking about monitoring for some of these other ongoing physical variables as a piece of the puzzle as the physician evaluates the patient so that you can monitor people's the use of medications the way they're using medicines their blood pressures their uh pulse in on an ongoing basis i think is a more extended
0: but it's interesting to me because i think looking at, at you know moving towards a value based right model i'm not so sure the provider system is designed to communicate with patients right they're, they they that's designed in an episodic correct method right? right you come in i help you you leave we're done. And if you don't come back, I assume you're well, right? So, but I almost think if I'm CVS and Aetna, and my job is now to keep you healthy, because I want to cut coupons while you're paying your premium, right? And I don't want you to use the system if at all possible. Um, and I I have a CVS almost ev- everywhere within reach of anybody, at least here in the US. Um, they might be in a better position to Communicate these capabilities or these uh, uh, systems or tests to a patient. Um, I don't know. You know, if we if we could ever get to a, a uh, arm stick or a finger stick and not need a phlebotomist, and I could just get enough, um, or or a cheek swab or something like that, and start to do this proactively, it's it's sort of. I don't want to say it changes the dynamic with the patient um, Then you have, say, directly with the provider. And telemedicine now makes the provider can be part of that when needed because you just dial them up. Right.
1: No, I think, I mean, and I think that's absolutely CVS and Edna's goal, right, is that they will shift your care and your primary care and all that into into the CVS, into the world, and they've opened some hubs in Houston right. um, to start prototyping that out. And it's a very interesting model um, to see how that shifts, and I agree that you know the the ongoing interaction, and the notion of telemedicine, being able to access more primary care and those types of care within your community will definitely help shift that model. And it'll be interesting to see about utilization. I mean, I think that if you look at um, the demographics, um, it, that will appeal to the demographic shift that's sort of happening, you know, with patient, people moving, employers more frequently, you know, so maybe there's less connection with that so-called primary care doctor and more willingness to be seen you know, on, a, you know, on a more ongoing basis in your community. It's easier, it certainly decreases travel time. These are big, these are big barriers to um, ongoing interaction with the healthcare system. And so I think that being, you know, the idea that CVS and Aetna, you know, that they're promoting is actually a really interesting change and shift in how that care is delivered. Whether they will start recommending, whether they'll have the, um, the skills, you know, that the background to really implement um, precision medicine, um, genomics in those settings and whether that will be, you know, you know, it's still the level of complexity. Um, I I, may not lend itself to that setting, but it may be, maybe,
0: I mean, I think there's, there are quite a few pieces of the chain that will lend itself to, to that because of cloud back end, because of telemedicine, because of certain capabilities where you don't have to have the, that expert right there in that building. Um, but you know, it, it it when I tie it all together, I I, I actually think the, the all this shift happened because of a the value based shift, right? Right, right. Um, everybody likes to poo poo the Affordable Care Act, but that if it wasn't for that, none none of this would be happening that we're talking about right, right now. No matter no matter how much technology evolved, right, right. If you don't change the way people get paid, it's sort of hard to change business models and people's behavior. But you had mentioned earlier about real-time or real-world evidence. And I find that if you start to connect all these dots is, the FDA demanding all this is we're moving almost to know when something is working and when something is not, and therefore you're starting to step into the world of adjudication. So why would you want to pay for anything that wasn't working? So It's it's really interesting when you start to tie all these, these pieces together, it might take five years or 10 years, but you can see the trajectory of where this whole space is going.
1: Absolutely, I mean, but I think this is, this has been one of the real challenges too, is is getting payment, you know, how much outcome data is necessary to convince the payers to pay, right? I mean, and intellectually, uh, you can say that you know these these uh, these technologies can enable better care, can enable better outcomes, uh, you know, can save money. But I think you made the, you made the point earlier in our discussion that until we bring enough data together to demonstrate the impact, right, and to demonstrate where there's an impact, where there's not an impact, and how we think about you know applying. Um, the technologies, the broad range of technologies, in kind of that that rational way, um, that without that reimbursement,
0: but there's going to be. But so that's, that's right? Yeah, yeah that's, I don't know so if it's going to be a reimbursement, right? Yeah. Like so that's, that's to your point. The that's
1: that. So that leads to the potential change in in how those those type that type of care is provided and paid for. Right. And I and yeah. I'm
0: and every time I'm looking at something these days, I am totally stepping back and saying, I need. I, I I don't want to be in the box. I I. Why does reimbursement matter? Okay, if it does, great. I apply it. But, right. But questioning it because the implementation. You know, you think about the ECG on the Apple Watch. No reimbursement. Right. Right. Um. They they just want to have the ecosystem and have you in the ecosystem. If you think about tech, they're picking up data on you in more ways than anybody could possibly imagine. Right. And so they have a actually a a central database with enough data in some areas to potentially enter, start dipping their toes into the adjudication box. Whereas I think pharma medical device, they're usually limited to one piece of data or an incredibly small data set on a small number of patients. And so I think, I think we're going to see a big change well, happen now, over time. now
1: you're talking about how do you how do you bring all these pieces together and I think and I mean because what you're talking about is okay so now you've got multiple types of data points in multiple different places on the same person yes and I mean the goal will be to be able how to use all that data on an individual to make the right decisions so then that requires a whole new model for that type of I mean, because you know, a lot of the ways that data is being aggregated right now is in large databases, Correct. right? Yeah. And a lot of those large databases are de-identified, right? And even where they're not, like even if it's a healthcare provider or, or you know an insurer where the database is identified where you can track to the individual. There's still a lot of limitations about how do you bring multiple different pieces of disparate data together to impact care. Yeah, right? and
0: and it's interesting though if you think about it, right? I mean, the the biggest impediment in my mind is EHRs, right? Is EMRs, right? There, I actually think that the the one thing that could break the whole healthcare system <laughs> is the EMR because of their absolute, you know, fighting. Trying to do, you know, share data, right, a- and create a interoperability standard, right? They've been fighting it for years. Apple comes out and says, "No, nope, you can download." I mean, it's not perfect, but now on my on my on my device, I can just push a button and share my health data if it's there with any app right. that's on well, my and, phone. Right, and
1: and that's exactly right. And that, there there are a lot of companies that are popping up to right. allow for individuals to control their own data and to have access to it. And then, of course, that gets into the notion of can you layer in blockchain to be able to track that, be able to create your digital ledger and and all these other pieces.
0: Or or what if I just create the dashboard that accepts the API from these different things and create something that, oh, my God, when I look at it, I can actually make I'm not saying it's going to be the, you know, the world's best medical decision, but move my health in a a much better direction based on hypertension or diabetes or any one of these where we're spending a tremendous amount of money. Right. I, I just I think the existing status quo is busy on making money and not seeing that this undercurrent is happening at such a pace. That I'm, I'm afraid that they're not going to keep right.
1: up. Well, there, you know, there's a new company in this digital AI data processing consumer ownership of their data. Uh, there's a new company almost every day, it seems like. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that you're absolutely right. You know, the tea leaves are is that there is going to be a big shift. All the big, all the big tech companies are looking at how do they enable. Um, you know, the consumer, the patient, the person to own their data, to control their data and for them to be able to, you know, push out relevant information, and gather that data. So something is going to change.
0: For yep. Sure. Well, I'm highly critical of a, a lot of the new, uh, you know, even the existing and or new companies, right? Because the skill set is not falling off a tree when you try to put the right group together to make it work. Um, the number of people that we're, Graduating that have those skills is incredibly low, and everybody is fighting for them right now. So, um, but but let's let's jump back to yeah. to, you know, two questions. Um, what are the impediments in in moving this into clinical practice and helping patients? And the, and the next question would be is. Where do you see this evolving over the next three to five years? Because I feel like everything I every time I ask this question, it's a three to t- five year time frame of really making it happen.
1: Right. Uh, and hopefully it's only three to five years. Uh, yes. Is what I would say. Um, so I think that, you know, focusing in on, you know, on, you um, uh, molecular diagnostics and, and understanding you know the genomics rather than staying staying um separate from the ai and ml and how that will actually be an enabler but um i think that what we're going to see is a is new and different types of, of ways of processing molecular data you know of analyzing molecular data getting molecular data different pieces so looking at transcriptomics looking at proteomics, ex vivo testing, to be able to get a a broader sense of in oncology, certainly of the tuber microenvironment, as I mentioned before. I think that the application of a broader range of uh, genomic analysis, so not just looking at the genomic data, but also being able to marry in the germline data and the implications of that. Um, And then I think even getting in more of the pharmacogenetics, I think that having a bigger picture around what molecular biology means and both from a cancer perspective but then also from a well then also you know from a preventive perspective um people's risk factors Um, um i think that that is where we need to go um and so that it becomes part of you know actually um from earlier on um you know kind of a part of the decision tree and part of the Uh, metrics around how do you provide preventive care, how do you move towards wellness, and these types of things. So it moves further up in the healthcare system. That's what I would like to see happen. Um, Whether that's going to happen or not, you know, in three years, five years, at least I see more of a conversation around it um, as being part of the dialogue. But you're absolutely right. There's still a lot of patients who don't get their tumor tested. Um, and there's still uh, a lack of understanding of the range of possible solutions out there. So,
0: so uh, want to wrap it up and not take up more of your time. And I I really appreciate uh, the time. Congratulations again on the on the uh, acquisition. It's uh, I'm sure it was a lot of fun going through it, um, reflecting on my own experience. Um, and I look forward to continuing our conversation in the future. Thanks, Harry. It's been fun. Me too. And that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed Moneyball Medicine, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is greatly appreciated. Hope you join us next time. Until then, farewell.